There's just something about that type of content that is emotionally, intellectually, affectively mature. I just feel like there's not a ton of it. Yeah, dude, this this is so good. What you're talking about is wisdom. Like, that's what's missing. What's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin. I'm Austin. (laughs) And I'm Troy. (laughs) (laughs) And this week we are going to be continuing um, our discussion about media. And we're going to be talking about what I think is probably one of the best television shows that has ever been produced, definitely in recent memory, Better Call Saul. What do you think about that, Troy? Am I overselling? No, I I totally agree with you. Um, I actually, I mean, I I watched Breaking Bad when it was airing, and so I was excited about the idea of Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould continuing the the story a bit by going backwards, I guess, to doing Better Call Saul. I don't think I I knew that you were watching it. which is weird because we talk all the time about media stuff. So how did we not? Maybe we did not just forgot, but it, it wasn't in my mind that we were simultaneously watching Better Call Saul. Although I think you kind of caught up a bit at the end here, right? Yeah, I was two seasons behind. So mm-hmm. I had seen one, two, and three, but I hadn't seen four and five. And then, of course, six was airing, and I I wasn't keeping up with everybody. But everyone was like talking about how this is amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, shit. And then so my partner and I, we were like, well, maybe we got to catch up. She was only one season behind. Um, so, yeah, so we then kind of played catch up a little bit. And then, uh, and yeah, we just finished it last week. So figured we could talk about that, not only talk about it from a did we like it or not, because, spoiler, we both liked it, but we can also probably kind of peel it <laughs> apart for themes. What did the show do right? Um, there's a lot of interesting ideas, obviously, that are floated throughout the show. And so, as you would expect from uh, these two dudes, I'm sure we'll do some unpacking and maybe maybe, maybe force some unnecessary discussions about concepts and high theory over <laughs> the, uh, the media landscape. But um, would you expect anything less? So I think that's pretty much it. And then any other housekeeping stuff we got to get out of the way? I think we're just going to mention that uh, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and you can support us tangibly there and get access to stuff like our discord server, our backlog of bonus episodes, the ability to vote on our next patron sponsored podcast, which by the time this is up, um, suggestions are being sought and solicited for that. So go ahead and go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn if you want to get access to that stuff. Cool. And once life settles for me a little bit, I'm just wrapping up a big research project. And once that is done, 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 I um, will be spending a little bit more time. And hopefully I can line up some freaking time for some bonus episodes. And even if it's just like if Troy's too busy and he can't do it, maybe it'll be just like us having another guest on talking about stuff. Or I don't know. We'll figure some sort of format out where maybe we can just get on there and, and recommend some things to read or engage with like topical issues or something like that i'm not going to talk about like culture war shit because (laughs) that's my always shitty minute is that i will refuse to wade too heavily into that but you know but maybe if there's like important topical stuff that we can talk about in like a theoretical way maybe we can do that we'll figure something out in uh, in the in the coming months here but we do call that owls after dark for a reason you're allowed to engage in your dark side in your id (laughs) okay yeah i I really don't want to these days though brother i just can't (laughs) 
It's too much. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get started with the shitty minute. That's the part of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears in the last little bit. So, Austin, what's got you down? Well, so this is – people often talk about, like, what is the value of philosophy? What is the value of philosophy, right? That's the joke, right? The joke is that the the value of getting a philosophy degree is akin to the value of getting an art degree and all these other kind of jokey things that it's not applicable. And there's so much in the media. There's so much pressure. And then even in business, there's so much pressure for people to just focus on STEM-related courses or on – on things that seem immediately applicable. And I can't tell you how many people that I have seen on Twitter that, and just other people who have been kind of close in my circle who either studied philosophy or maybe psychology and who have dropped out of academia, they've left academia and they've become UX researchers or web developers. Now here's the irony. I also am in that world uh, in some ways. Now, I'm not I'm not a researcher or a developer, but I am a director of a digital media company, and uh, so I do a lot of work in that space. But um, I, I guess I just want to say that, like, I don't always want to give into like a philosophy has to be freaking applicable in an in instrumental sense. And I know Troy has talked a lot about this as well, you know, that like actually philosophy graduates, what is it for like graduate school? They score higher across the board on average than most other degrees. What are, what are the numbers? Yeah. I mean, like at the, the GRE, they're near the top along with like uh, mathematicians and um, they're, I think the highest on the MCATs, one of the highest on the LSAT, which, you know, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a causal line between studying philosophy and doing well at other academic pursuits. It, it could also be a self-selection thing. But, you know, yeah. the point is just it, it's not the case that getting a philosophy degree like dooms you to eternal poverty or something like that. That that sort of narrative is false. Yeah, and I and so I guess my shitty minute is just like don't fucking listen to the haters because I will say this as as somebody who has studied philosophy and high theory for you know a very long time both in my personal studies and then in undergrad and then on through graduate research um, is that this frame of thinking when you can really buy into it it actually not just as an instrument that you can use in the business world, which which is very true, you can. Like people, I just had this really crazy meeting yesterday with, I can't say too much about the client because they're building something and it's a proprietary technology or whatever. But anyway, they're, they're creating a platform for um, where people can go and it'll be a resource for people, right? But this four-hour meeting that I had yesterday was basically just a brainstorm session where myself and a couple of the, a couple of the figures from this other organization we just were geeking out on philosophy for like two hours right and they were so interested in what i had to offer and what our company could then contribute to what their service was and so much of this had to do with my ability to meet them and then to even elevate the conversation at a philosophical level, right? And they were just fucking enamored by it. Now, part of it also is just my like enthusiastic presentation, I'm sure, as well. So maybe I could have just I could have maybe just been speaking bullshit and they might have enjoyed it, which is also a skill to learn, by the way. But but I just mean but I don't think that I don't think that's true because there it's not like there was no there there. There was value in what we were talking about, not only for helping 
create solutions for what they needed for their organization, but also just because we were able to vibe with each other and understand each other and then seek these higher goals, like not just seeking profit, you know, but actually be like, is there something that we can do to do good in the world, right? And not just as lip service either, but like genuinely, these are people who are a part of charities and organizations that are that are trying to reach, in this particular instance, athletes who would be aspiring to be in the Olympics in Brisbane in um, 2032. And a couple of the members of the board that we were working with are former Olympic athletes themselves, right? And they they were like, you know, what happens when you come to the end of your journey and um, you don't have any sort of transition from being an elite athlete, you know, to, to something afterwards. And so it's about kind of um, kind of like working with those people, but then also like people who are aspiring to that, but then not just athletes, other people, right? And to be able to to speak all these different languages and to be able to then elevate the conversation to like these higher ethical principles is such a, a valuable a valuable skill set that you can learn, not just so that you can sell it, but so that you can really elevate any sort of situation that you're in. And then and then it's it's good for your own well-being because then you know any environment that you're in, like you can work with them and you can think critically and you can hear what they're saying, you can think analytically and you can take what's coming at you and you can suss out the bullshit and you can suss out the superficial and you can suss those things and then you can say, yes, but what if we turn it towards the higher? What if we turn and aim it towards the best, right? You, you can do that. And I think that part of the reason that I'm able to do that in in to the degrees that I am is because of my years of study in philosophy. And I think that another reason that I'm able to do that is because no challenge that comes up in fucking business is ever more challenging than reading the phenomenology of spirit. So when these motherfuckers are like, oh my God, this is a really, this is really fucking complex. I'm like, no, it's yeah, not. You don't fucking know, it's man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's not. And the ability to have sustained concentration and focus and calm and, and deal with that stress, when you get into the business world or when you get into the private sector or even into the charity sector, into the NGO sector, the majority of the little issues. Now, I'm not talking about like if you're working for a charity and they're like, we want to solve world hunger. Like that's a big fucking issue that you can't just be like, that's not a problem because there's obviously lots of roadblocks that will create problems. But the day-to-day, like how to deal with people, how to organize, how to get teams together, you know, like how to strategize and figure things out. Those problems, they don't seem insurmountable. It always seems like, okay, maybe there is a way forward. Like maybe there's a way. And it kind of not creates a sense of like hubris. It can, but I think it creates a sense of confidence that you're like, okay, if we get the right people together and we attune ourselves to the problem accordingly, if we have good understanding, then we'll be able to kind of like change our vision and we can go in and we can actually solve these problems with with some level of fortitude. Right now, I'm not saying that it's going to be like a fucking panacea and you're going to know all the problems and, you know, philosophy is going to give you enlightenment and there's going to be no problems because there are massive structural, political and social obstacles that you're still going to confront. But compared to individuals that I encounter who just go to business school or who just study STEM classes or maybe who don't spend as much time in this like deep like thought and focus – they're not often as well equipped as the people that I'm around oftentimes who do study and who do have those those um, those skills or those tools that they've developed. So I don't want to totally instrumentalize philosophy. 
because I think there's also just something valuable in being able to have that capacity for deep focus and deep understanding and problem solving like there's or 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 engaging with puzzles asking the right questions but there is something valuable in that and I just get so annoyed when when people make that kind of just constant joke like what are you going to do with philosophy and I'm like motherfucker I'll do anything I'll do fucking anything (laughs) and anything that I do is going to be like the value of what I learned by or what I'm still learning by studying the kind of like philosophical orientation in the world is going to allow me to come to this with a richness and a depth, you know? And I hesitate to say allow me to be successful because that seems to tie into like consumer success and economic success. And I don't mean that, but but other forms of success. Like like this meeting that I had yesterday where we just made these connections, like fucking human connections at a really deep level. Like those are things that I guarantee I'm going to continue to do for the next 50 years of my life largely in part because of not just what I have studied in philosophy, but what I'm going to continue to do in in the times that I'm able to research. So yeah, it's kind of a shitty minute, but also kind of like a, a sticky leaves, but more of a shitty minute, like just don't fucking buy into what the haters say, you know? So yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, it always drives me crazy when people say stuff like, you know, what, what value does philosophy have? And obviously the, the problem there is the the extension of the concept value for them is extremely narrow, right? Um, yeah. Meaning something like instrumental for the sake of making money for somebody else who's above me, <laughs> which like, I don't mm. give a shit about that. Um, mm. But the point is like, okay, and the worry the worry there, right, is so, you know, philosophy is so much about the sort of niche theoretical arguments and dealing with those. And is that is that skill applicable, not just necessarily in like a capitalist economy, but just in life generally? outside of like reading these specific texts. And the point is just, yes, it is, right? Um, yeah. Practical reasoning, which is the thing you do in everything you do in life, <laughs> right? How to figure out what to do. That's practical reasoning. Um, and, how to, and how to figure out what you should do. Uh, like what are your ends and what are your means? That's practical reasoning simpliciter, right? Um, mm. has like directly that's what almost all of philosophy is about I mean even <laughs> analyzing theoretical arguments involves practical reasoning because understanding an argument is an end that you would have and you have to figure out the appropriate means to achieve it right yeah. so like everything even the theoretical part of um, philosophy is grounded in practical reasoning and that's a Hegelian point too right that practical reasoning is the ground of theoretical reasoning um, which I I'm mostly on board with at least this part of it right and so yeah that's like an important point to notice that okay then basically that means philosophy is about everything right so mm. if you want to talk about whether philosophy is useful not just in the narrow consumerist sense but in like a broad like becoming a human being with a diverse skill set who can do lots of things and engage in lots of projects then i mean i don't think anything else could be as useful as philosophy exactly and so far and, and as other this, things are useful they're also kind of philosophical right that's why every single academic discipline used to be philosophy at some point and and this this goes to the roots of knowing thyself and working on yourself and and care of the self and the more well-rounded and the more full you can become the more bountiful your activities will be because your 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 being, if you will, will be more full, which means you have more capacity to share. And then I'm going to get super fucking romantic here, but then you can lead with like gift, right? Then you can offer that as, as gift, right? As, as love or as care or as like 
the capacity to create relations that other people can latch into. And and I believe that there is a sense in which like the philosophical way of life is a gift and it is about love. It's not just the love of wisdom, but I think there's love there's love for the kind of like practical concerns for how to live a better life and how to engage with people. And and to lead with that creates this opening that you become more full and you become more ca- capable of giving that in in your service. And I think that's fucking beautiful because part of the problem with like the need to like find something useful is that it's really – it like reduces you to this individual unit that can like self-assert into a situation. But then really your self-assertion becomes exploited and then you just kind of open yourself up towards like kind of like more frustration and and I don't know. It kind of like I think it boxes you in and it, and it kind of like accepts the rules of the game. Whereas there's something potentially maybe like revolutionary about – the capacity of not accepting the rules of the game, even if we have to be in the world, right? Even if you have to be in society, you're like in but not of sort of thing. And um, mm. yeah, I think there's something nice evangelical about that. idiom there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, there's there's some good stuff in that world. Okay, take the good, dis- discard. Take the good, discard the bad. That's <laughs> yeah, it's a hot take right now, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, but aren't Marxists essentially just all – they're like in but not of, right? It's like, yeah, we're in but we we operate by a sort of like different framework. So, I mean, it's kind of like – there's like a Protestant logic there that kind of has structured the uh, the revolutionary mindset. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty uh, Angambenian kind of take. Well, I, I'm going to <laughs> Italy soon, so those Italians in their wisdom – I'm going to channel it for the next little while here up until COVID denialism. Then I might depart, but you know, um, Speak, sp- speaking yeah, of that, we ahead. were we were talking before we started recording that when Austin gets back from Italy, maybe we should have an episode where he just rants about what's the positive version of rant. You can have a positive rant, I G- guess. Gushes, gushes, just gush, gush. Yeah. Just gushes about his experiences in Italy. And I just, <laughs> I, and I just listen and then, and then occasionally include an exclamatory remark about Amen. out of jealousy yeah. and happiness and joy <laughs> so if you want to hear that episode let us know yeah definitely all right let's go on to the main segment oh by the way moral of the story like just it's okay to love philosophy and to do it and i will say this too if you are like what can i do with this just from a purely instrumental perspective i also promise you that in that from within that framework it's still useful like there are a lot of fucking CEOs of these tech companies that you find out and you're like, oh, they were a philosophy major? Like sometimes you might think like especially if they're like union-busting assholes, which I don't have an example off the top of my head. But then you might be like, hmm, maybe maybe they should have paid a little bit more attention in ethics. But um, <laughs> but a lot of people that are high achievers, quote, un- with lots of air quotes around it, um, a lot of them have studied philosophy or have studied like philosophically adjacent courses. And I just want to let people know that, like, there's so much fucking value in it, right? Like, even if you just are looking to, like, figure out how you can make a decent salary and and whatnot. And then I would even argue that even if that's your your conscious intent, that I would say that even the course of studying philosophy would would kind of change that. So that even your intent won't be the same as it would have been had you just gone to business school, right? Like, there's going to be some sort of, like, unconscious byproduct of just studying philosophy rigorously that's even going to kind of change your ethical outlook most likely to some degree to some degree 
I'm going to think. That's 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 my I think. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's that that classic, I guess it's not that old, but it's kind of classic paper by Eric Schwitzgebel about how like a kind of meta analysis of um of people with people who are tenured philosophy professors, I think it is, or at least full-time philosophy professors, and that they tend to cheat on their taxes and cheat on their spouses (laughs) to the exact same degree or exact same rate as um, the regular normal population. And that it includes the subset of ethicists. They're no different. Mm. Um, And so, and that's often used as like a, uh, like what's the point of studying ethics if it doesn't actually make you a better person? It isn't likely to do that. And I'm always like, well, the problem is we don't have the control group. Yeah, like, who would these people have been what if, if they it's, didn't? You, yeah, who? Maybe people who go into ethics and philosophy are just naturally worse people, and they actually are by getting closer to the mean, have become much better. Like that—that that seems to me just as plausible. Uh, yeah, like maybe they're studying ethics <laughs> to fight the demon within. <laughs> yeah, man. There is a common saying out there that you you get attracted to whatever topic in philosophy you least into it. Mm. Right. That's why you have to like figure it out because it's not intuitive to you. So, yeah, what if it's like you're drawn to ethics because you're a shitty human being and you kind of know it? That's so interesting. Yeah. Write that paper. (laughs) Um, All right. Let's get into the main segment. Let's talk about Better Call Saul. Yeah. I almost said Breaking Bad because it it is kind of just within the Breaking Bad universe. Like forget the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is like the BBU, the Breaking Bad universe. Yeah, and I think it obviously even obviously narratively is, and even you know um, conceptually, there's a through line there. And I think we'll get to this. I think uh, at some point in talking about it, there's an important kind of counterpoint happening in the Better Call Saul narrative um, compared to the Breaking Bad one. And I think a counterpoint in a way that only like a family member could provide, right? Like someone who shares something really lots mm-hmm. of common ground with you can then point out your weakness um so yeah there's a lot to say about the relationship between breaking bad and better call Saul. um i do wish they had reminded me of a few things in breaking bad because i realized it's been a long time since that show aired and i did not remember the plot points (laughs) yeah i spent you mean towards the end yeah yeah like when they do the crossover yeah like we were we were watching and the bit when they kidnap Saul and they kind of like kneel him over the open grave and then they get him back in the van. My partner looked at me and she's like, have we seen this before? Like, did we see this? And like, it felt really yeah. familiar, but I couldn't remember if that was like a restaging of a scene that we had actually seen previously. Yeah, same. And I was able to guess that it wasn't because uh, Aaron Paul, who plays Jesse Pinkman, just looks old as fuck now. So yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but was- maybe they just... Maybe they reshot a scene that they had previously shown us, but from more of like Saul's perspective now, rather than previously, it would have been more on Walt and Jesse. Yeah. Yeah, it becomes more clear, though, that that scene in the back of the van was a setup to remind you um, when when, when Saul, Jimmy, gives the testimony in front of Marie um, and the district attorney or prosecutor or whoever it is that's prosecuting him about having or being kidnapped by Walt and Jesse that they needed to remind you of that scene so you had a fuller view of what exactly Saul was doing yeah 
What did you think of like bringing Jesse and Walt back? Besides just that, like there's also that scene where Jesse's standing outside the law office and it's pouring rain, right? And Kim walks out and you know, he asks for a cigarette mm-hmm. and then he says something like like I don't know, is this guy is this guy legit, you know? And she says, you know, like he was. Yeah. It yeah, when I knew him he was him, a yeah, great lawyer. Um is there something obviously that's more about Kim in that scene than it is Jesse. Like I did wonder was it necessary to have Jesse there? Like maybe because I guess it does or or did it just seem like fan service? I did wonder if that was just kind of like that was like one of those easter eggs where I think, you know, breaking bad fans would be like, "Ooh." And so I did wonder was it more about fan service in creating the crossover or was that necessary and like integral to the story to get to the point that we can see Kim's transformation and her story arc about her kind of like one her admiration for him like she actually did think that he was a great lawyer and it wasn't just that she was like duped by his charms but she actually thought that there was something about him as an effective communicator and as somebody who was a wheeler and dealer and there was an integrity that she saw in him that made her think that he was a a great lawyer and a good man even though he obviously has his own flaws um so there's something important about that. I just did wonder if the crossover was necessary at that point. Yeah, I wonder if it's like, because if there's one way to describe the skill set that Jimmy has as a lawyer, it's like clever, right? He's clever. He can yeah. figure out non-traditional ways of achieving goals that often like break norms, but do so in such a way that's technically allowed. Um, whereas Kim's like the opposite, right? She's just incredibly skillful, but always within the bounds of right. the like the norms that are existing in that in the legal system. So, yeah, you can see how someone like her would find his skill set really interesting and admirable and worth emulating or at least worth like um they're a good pair in that way. They have these different skill sets that are both be- like aimed at the same goals in a lot of mm. ways. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I what wonder do you think? about the fan the fan service thing like yeah, it does seem like the Jesse yeah. The Jesse scene there is kind of fan servicey, right? And then yeah. the the scene with Walt and Jesse in the van is definitely it, it, it appears fan servicey at the when you see it because it's kind of funny and like it's nice to see the two of them together and you know yeah. having their their weird chemistry that we love so much when Breaking Bad was on. And of course, later <laughs> later it makes sense that that scene needed to be shown so you can be reminded of what mm. exactly happened to get the the weight of of Jimmy's kind of quote unquote lie at the at the hearing sentencing or whatever it was with the prosecutor but then this the last scene with walt when he is in the bunker or whatever it is with jimmy that one was mm. i thought classic and probably like the great maybe the great scene of the whole series other than the last scene or the courtroom scene which is the great one um yeah i mean do you want do you want to talk about that like that's what i'm yeah let's talk about it yeah why yeah why why is that the great scene yeah, I thought for two reasons. Just um, I think it set up it set up the theme for Jimmy's um, quote unquote redemption arc. I don't like that term redemption arc, but it kind of is a redemption arc. Um, and then also the contrast of that arc with Walt, which is what I think it kind of is, right? The, now this is because the the time traveler question, which Mike right. he had also had this discussion with Mike in the desert, right? Like if you could go back in time. What would you do? And Mike is like, you know, he's basically alluding to like the the people that matter the most to him that he would go and he would see them 
you know, take care of them or whatever. And then Jimmy's well, well, like, well, with Mike, it was original sin, right? It's the first time yeah. I took a bribe, I'd go back and not do it. So it's taking yeah. the bite of the apple for him, right? It's a very moralized vision for Mike. So he's kind of a tragic moral anti-hero in a way, right? Yeah, but that's all because of what it's done to his family, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the fractures there. And then for Jimmy, it was, what, what did, was it uh, Berkshire Hathaway that he said he wanted to invest yeah, in? Yeah, invest yeah. in Warren Buffett's company. And that's it, just money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Mike's like, yeah. what, so it's just money? And he's like, what else would it be? Yeah, and then so the Walt discussion is around the same question, if you could go back in time, and then... Walt's response was was classic grumpy Walt, but it was like I don't have any fucking time for. Are you just talking about regrets, right? He's like he's like the grumpy scientist. He's like not only is it a stupid question, he's like it's <laughs> theoretically and literally impossible. He's like, but if you're talking about regrets, well then let's fucking talk about regrets. Which yeah, it's gr- was kind it's of a, great. Yeah, oh, a great ahead, way yeah. to cut through that bullshit. Yeah, it was it was lovely to see the grumpy Walt response, right? Because <laughs> it, yeah. It, it again brings out his character as mm. being this person who needs to be known as smarter and more powerful than everybody else, even when there's no need to do that, because there's no sense in which like Saul's trying to one up him here or engage in a power play. But he ha- he kind of has to make it that way, right? Because that's just who he is. He's just an mm. asshole. But he so he calls it dumb and then takes it seriously because he actually. Mm-hmm. does think it's a good question he just can't admit that it's a good question right and then mm-hmm. talks about how his his regret has nothing to do with the fact that he's ruined his family's life or hank's life or the many jesse or the innumerable other people whose lives he's ruined or even his own life it's really just i regret the dumb decision that i made when i could have been a super powerful and legally acceptable person um, which mm-hmm. is the only thing I ever wanted. And I made that dumb decision. And if I could redo it, I would. That's all. I, w- I all the same thing I have now, but through more acceptable means and the cops wouldn't be after me. Like that's basically mm. it, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so why do you, like, obviously it's a great scene, but what else? I mean, do you think that that is kind of just... It, it, that that sort of encapsulates so many of the themes of the entire series or. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I do want to talk about the contrast with Walt. Right. Um, but maybe let's talk about the, the Jimmy arc there first. What, what did you think about? Cause that's like a nice, a nice little setup for talking about the contrast. I think, what did you mm-hmm. think about the final, the whole, the, the whole like surprise twist that Jimmy sets up this lie Um and, and gets like a you know seven year sentence is extremely clever. Gets the does a slip and Jimmy thing, but with, with like the legal system, right? Scams him a bit. Gets this lighthearted sentence with bluebell ice cream and a nice mm. comfy you know um, like rich person's prison sentence. And then fakes this thing about ratting out Kim on some stuff just to get her to the courtroom, and then just gives it all up in that monologue. What did you think about that? I was pretty like blown away. Like not sure I liked it at first. It was kind of like, I don't I don't know about this. But then after thinking about it for a while, I, I loved it. But I'm curious what your first impressions were. Yeah, I I was like, oh shit, okay. 
I get why he's doing everything now. And to me, the romantic in me enjoyed it, right? Because it was the kind of like triumph of care and love for this person, maybe also a sort of recognition of his guilt for his participation in Chuck's death. And there's a sense in which it's kind of like, um, even though even though I'm not a fan of punitive justice, there's a sense in which it feels good sometimes for there to be that kind of paying of a debt, right? And um, and yeah, and and so I think I think I kind of I felt I felt good about it, right? So like just my in- initial feeling was like okay. Like there's a swelling of kind of like, okay. But then you do really wonder, like, is that part of Jimmy's character? Like we don't really see him wrestling with the decision or the point at which he makes the decision that he's going to do that. And so that's why it takes us by surprise. And then you kind of wonder at what point did he decide that he was going to do this? And um, at what point did he decide that he was going to, to, you know, sacrifice himself essentially to completely clear him so that she could be free and um, I don't know exactly when that point is but I think that's kind of like an interesting thing to think about you know was it just that when he found out that she had already turned over evidence to the DA in Albuquerque and so all the evidence that he thought he still had that was going to get him he thought he was still going to game the system he was still gaming right he got it reduced to seven years he got the ice cream and then he's like ah and I got one more thing in his mind he's thinking I'm probably going to get it down to five years you know maybe maybe Mm -hmm. less um, and then they're like, dude, we've already got that. And then he learns that actually Kim is partly on the chopping block for it. And so at what point does he decide? And then what was the motivation? Was it simply, well, shit, I, I can't keep doing this forever because at some point, you know, you, you just run into, I don't know, you run into a wall that you can't get through. Or was it kind of even more like moral like i deserve this right like fuck it you know um a kind of i just won't belong in the world and i'm tired i'm tired of the hustle i'm tired of of having to always be on all the time and maybe actually now i can just i can just rest <laughs> in a way you know yeah i mean i, I don't think it's the latter cuz he's exuberant in telling the truth to the court, right? So it's not like a, oh, I can finally rest. I can finally give up the lie. I can finally like be authentic or something like that. I don't think it's that, right? Um, I don't think it's like a self-flagellation thing either, which would be kind of morose. Like he he was too exuberant for it to be self-flagellation, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to explain that fact. And I think you're right that in the, probably I would guess in the moment of, Telling Marie the story and the and the prosecutor when he's in the in the jail or wherever it is, um, he's still doing slip and Jimmy, right? He's scamming and getting mm-hmm. his sentence down to seven years or whatever it was. Um, then when he hears that, oh no, you can't give us any extra information about Howard Hamlin because Kim already did that. And he's like, What? That totally takes him by surprise, right? And then the next yeah, time and next she and she's now culpable, at least in a civil court, to lose yeah. fucking everything. Everything. Yeah. Um, and then the next time you see him, I think, is on the plane 
when he's got the um the, oh, the uh, marshal next to him the, yeah the, the u.s marshal next to him and he calls the lawyer over and it's like hey tell him i i got something um mm. good uh i think that's when it's like because you can kind of tell on his face he's got like a I, i'm screwing myself here but i'm doing it on purpose don't worry this is there's a plan here right mm. I, I kind of think you can see that in in the way he's he's talking so i think that's the, supposed to be like the okay he's realized that what kim did wasn't stupid and irrational it was important and the important thing is that the truth matters and especially matters mm. to howard hamlin's wife um as well as generally speaking and kim knows that and so that's what i have not realized in fact have not realized my entire life and that's why that scene with walt is so prescient beforehand because you remember i can't remember the context but jimmy tells this story about some slip and jimmy story about how he scammed somebody by taking a fall and then suing them i can't remember do you remember what it was exactly i don't but i know it's yeah 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 exactly yeah i can't remember the exact story but then walt has this extremely cutting line where he goes oh so you've always been this way yeah which is just oh man stab in the heart in classic walt fashion right You've always been this way. You've always been slipping Jimmy. You always lied. You've never. You're a con man. Yeah, you've never like you told are. the truth. Yeah. You don't even have a like a self, like a true self, right? You've always yeah, had a mask exactly. of some kind. You've always been slipping Jimmy, and that just cuts him to the core, I think. And that's the thing, right? Is he? I think realizes that's true. I've never told the truth. I've always been slipping Jimmy. I've always felt like I needed to be this person to get anywhere. And I've always used that as my excuse to never, ever tell the truth and try and like form any sort of coherent self. And that's the decision that he makes, right? Is even if it means going to jail for, you know, the rest of my life, like that's not, that's not the good thing, right? I'm not like taking the punishment because I deserve it. It's that telling the truth matters and it especially matters to Kim. Right. And so I'm going to tell the truth, even if that means like kind of the end of my life um, for all intents and purposes. And yeah, I mean, as long as you don't see it as self-flagellation as like taking the retributive punishment for the sake of it or for some sort of some sense of like dessert, but as like a no truth matters and I've never told the truth my whole life. Right. I'm going to do it now, even if it means it's like practically it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's not good for me in a certain sense it wasn't good for kim either but it was important to do and yeah and i just thought that that way of seeing it was great like he's finally going to be a person he's finally into the truth for the first time and and not to get like too saccharine maybe but it it there's something about his love for kim that that stokes him in that mm-hmm. to, to to do that so Absolutely, there's yeah. yeah there's something that eventually he realizes that i mean it may have taken him what was it six years seven years after you know um that they're that they're separated or whatever um or that they've spoken and um there's a sense in which there's a realization that other people are suffering the consequences and um he couldn't do anything for Chuck. 
he gamed Chuck. He fucked over Chuck, which obviously just made Chuck even more sick. Um, even though yeah. he blames Howard ultimately for Chuck's death, um, there's a there's a there's a a large sense there's a to a large extent Jimmy was responsible, right, or at least contributed. Hmm. Um, and then so he couldn't do that. And that was a guilt that he had. But the interesting thing is that we get that one little shot of Chuck reading um, H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, uh, yeah. The Time Machine. And so there's there's something interesting about that connection there as well. I don't know if that was a story that maybe Chuck used to tell because Chuck was also a very upstanding moral person. So maybe Chuck read The Time Machine as a moral tale, right? Like, like if you had this capacity... If you had these regrets, as Walt cuts through the bullshit and lays out, like, what would you do? And this this actually reminds me very much of, like, Nietzsche's eternal return. You know, some people, they, they debate over, you know, is is the concept of eternal return, is it supposed to be, like, like cosmological, that literally everything returns, or is it more like a thought experiment, like an ethical thought experiment? And mm-hmm. I'm much more partial to that. Like, I don't really care. It about is, yeah. Of, like, it's the yeah. latter, yeah. Yeah, and that that's the more interesting thing is that that if everything eternally returns, to what are you going to commit yourself now, right? Like, to what are you going to live in service as an end here rather than like what Christianity does, which is always treating life as a means to an end, getting out, or other forms of nihilism that, that Nietzsche talks about with Plato – with this world is devalued in favor of another world. No, like, or or other truths or other realities that are supposedly behind or superior to, but no, it's the, the affirmation of life, nature, and history here and now. And, and there's something about that that I think is also important to recognize. And it was that sort of like, for without without trying to be like, hey, fucking everyone's a philosopher. It was that sort of like moral philosophy that Chuck... I think I think what we're supposed to think is that Chuck like clearly probably had many conversations with Jimmy about <laughs> and it never took until the end but it was there it was still there it was just Jimmy was like oh you and your fucking you know morality tale probably you know but finally when it comes to Kim he realized that he couldn't keep playing because the consequences of just keep playing the game and screwing people over were too high yeah, and you know, the contrast with Kim and Chuck, I think you're right to point that out. I hadn't thought about it this way, but the reason why it never took with Chuck is because Chuck isn't actually moral. He's norm-guided. He's norm-obsessed, right? He needs to be oh. seen as an upstanding person, oh, yeah, yeah, but he yeah. never actually treats other people, right? Especially those who he has any sort of power over, especially Jimmy, right? Mm. And so, and Jimmy sees through it and sees that Chuck is just kind of a weak, insecure person when it comes down to it. And just needs to be seen as extremely smart and successful and uh, accomplished and all that. And so he's like, I wouldn't want to be that way. But Kim Mm. isn't that way. She actually cares about doing the law to help people, right? Like she has, she's actually the kind of moral heroine in in the story. And so, yeah, his love for her. It's important, I think, that it's not like he's doing this to get her back. Right. It's pretty clear. It's not the case. Right. Mm. Um, Because that would be problematic from his like his redemption 
arc, right? He wouldn't actually be redemptive. It would be like, you know, a cynical, another kind of slip and Jimmy, like using moral improvement or like the guise of moral improvement to get his woman back or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's no, he sees her character and what she did and gets it. Like he understands when nobody else will understand why she did it. He understands because he knows her character, mm. right? And he realizes like, that's okay. I get it. That's, that's what's important. And I've all this time, I've loved her. He knows that, right? He loves her for that reason. Hmm. Um, and he finally, I think, realizes, yeah, that that's why I love her. And I need to emulate that. I want to emulate that, right? Mm. And so he has a sense of like, he's smoking the cigarette with her hmm. in the cell at the end as like a, what the, the face your dog has after a long walk. Like I've accomplished, like I've, I've done a thing that, I find to be six, like I've accomplished my goal, even though it seems like I've failed in the most spectacular way. Right. You He's know, got that satisfied face. Yeah. There's also something, there was something really erotic about that scene by them sharing the cigarette. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, that's actually like really hot. And, and maybe it's because, <laughs> maybe it's because the fracture was so deep that you're thinking, how are they sharing a cigarette? Which is, you know, the the kind of like the after sex cigarette, right? Kind of idea is mm-hmm. there was something and maybe that's ultimate satisfaction release. You know, we've just gone through that moment of, of connection and stress. And then it's just we can just be now, right? With the without like our brains being kind of like fucked by hormones or whatever it is that without the desire taking over us. There's something about we can just be with each other now at a sense of peace. But there was something so... I don't remember if she take. I think she takes the cigarette from him. And I was like, that was really interesting to me, that she was willing to still, after all of this, share intimacy with him. And and to me, that was one, beautiful, but also like quite, quite erotic. And I don't mean that in like the, like the, the, I'm not trying to debase it, but in like the kind of like real sense of like desire and love. And there was that there as well as the kind of like other conceptions of love that might be more care based. But that was a really interesting scene to me. Yeah. That makes me think like there's an important relationship between like a moral desire and erotic desire and not in like Mm. a kind of cheesy, like, Oh, you're so hot because you're so morally upstanding or whatever. Right. (laughs) Um, Right. But in a sense of like, there's a kind of power and honorability Mm. towards, um, those actions and those are attractive even erotic qualities right Mm, so there is mm. a sort of maybe that's kind of like a somewhat aristotelian point like combining the moral and the non-moral virtues together in a way um but yeah they seem fairly well integrated and that scene kind of shows it right Mm, yeah you you said something oh go ahead yeah yeah no no go ahead well don't forget what you were gonna say because because you said something to me last week where you and I don't remember if it was when we were recording or or if it was off offline, but you said like that you were excited for me to to watch the final few episodes because I hadn't seen like the final four or five episodes where it starts to make that turn towards like I had seen where like Lalo's storyline is kind of wrapped up and then now it's like okay here's years later now right but you were like mm-hmm. oh I, I can't wait for you to see it because you said you think that it was signaling like a different direction for what prestige television could be. Do you remember oh, yeah. saying something? Yeah. It, 
Is that totally derailing what your what your next point was going to be? Or no, that's actually where I was going. Um, oh, cool. Okay. And there's two ways of thinking about that question. One is like the the broader one of like prestige TV generally, and the ner- more narrow one is like the kind of the anti-hero um, obsession in prestige TV. Um, but they're 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 integrated questions, so we can kind of get through the big one and going through the small one or the narrow one. I think. So like, mm. here's what I was thinking. Um, and this is also to do with the kind of corrective uh, note that I think Better Call Saul is doing with respect to Breaking Bad and the the Walt arc. Because, you know, there's a certain, there were a lot of accusations when Breaking Bad was on about this being a heavily moralized, in the negative sense, tale, right? Mm-hmm. Where, and Vince Gilligan has even said, I think he's a fairly conservative thinker. And when I've heard interviews with him talking about how, you know, the Walt story is really a karmic story about mm. um, he has this extremely negative character trait, which never really comes out because he's powerless as a chemistry teacher, right? And then when he gets the opportunity to finally gain some power, the the sort of vicious character traits that he's inculcated over his life come fully flirt, like flowing out, right? Um, and the, the tale shows like his downfall, his slow downfall, and that the world works in such a way that that kind of person does not win in the end. Right? They what what goes around mm-hmm. comes around. That's the karmic sort of point, right? Um, and so there were some critiques about that, and like not recognizing like the you know the fragmented nature of morality and the fact that good things happen to bad people and bad things to good people. And um, there's obviously some of that in the in the series, but it's like ultimate justice in a sense kind of wins out in a way, and that's just not how the world works. Like, I was always sensitive to that because I, that's kind of a, a animating feature of my own thinking is trying to reconcile the fact that um, ultimate justice doesn't actually win out. But in a certain sense, uh, it ought to. And we're not naive for thinking that it ought to. And that's why I work on tragedy, because that's ultimately what it's about is there's the aspect of tragedy to these things that we have to recognize. Um, also, like, isn't the point of, of creating an artistic representation of that ideal aspirational, not representational? Mm. So yeah. the, the idea is, is that, hey, it might not actually be this way, but who gives a fuck? We're doing art, and shouldn't we project and create worlds that are kind of aiming towards the type of thing that we would like it to be? So there's something – whenever I hear those kinds of critiques, it's kind of like – like realism in fucking fantasy has no place in my mind. I'm like, stop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Gilligan probably doesn't think about it that way from what I've got. That's why I call him a somewhat conservative thinker, but I think it doesn't mm. matter what he thinks. Right. Yeah. We can, view yeah. It. We, we, we can view it as aspirational. Yeah. Um, I mean, not to psychoanalyze him too much, but he probably doesn't realize that actually what he's doing is like aspirational, try, aspirationally trying to project a world that maybe doesn't exist. And that's okay. That's, that's what the point of creating imaginative projects is all about, you know? And so even if he doesn't realize that it doesn't matter because maybe unconsciously that's still kind of, the the actual mo yeah for sure I, he probably does to some extent he's a pretty smart guy um i'd be yeah. curious no, nobody ever asks tv creators these kinds of questions unfortunately um yeah. so so you know that's all true and that's an appropriate like response to the moralization critique at the same time there's something kind of true about that and you look at the kind of the phenomenon in the mid to late 2000s to 2010 12 whatever like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, 
um, all that stuff, The Wire, all those like first golden era prestige TV dramas, right? Had these anti-heroes in them that we all, like Adam Kotzko's book on sociopaths talks about this in a way that's really illuminating. That our obsession with these sociopaths who seem to like be above the moral fray and they have a sort of, we think they have a sort of freedom because of that, right? They don't have to play by the rules. And so they get to engage in this, this like free life unburdened by morality or something. And, you know, I'm enough of a Kantian to be like, when you start thinking about morality as a burden on you, like an external thing that is, that burdens you and stops you from doing things you want to do, that's, that's divine command theory. Like that's a really narrow, naive view of morality, right? You know, morality is a thing you give yourself and it's a law you place on yourself. Um, mm. That's the Kantian kind of picture. And so I'm always worried when when something starts portraying morality as that external sort of force that acts on you, and um, and so I thought you know there's there's something about that kind of vision of the of the antihero, the specific kind of modern antihero like Walter White and and Don Draper and Tony Soprano and all them, that I thought you know is subject to some of this critique, and the way it views the sociopath, and. You know, Walt's redemption arc is kind of weird. It wasn't really satisfying in the end. That's why a lot of people say like the Ozymandias episode, the penultimate episode of Breaking Bad that Ryan Johnson directed, it was actually the, the finale because it was mm. fantastic, right? It's got all the, the crazy sequences and everything. could have just ended that way with Walt. Like, I think it's in the end of it where he's like at the cabin and he's just lost everything. Mm. Um, and that could have been the end. Not this whole like he comes back and he kills everybody and saves Jesse or whatever with the with the machine gun in the car or something science, you know, enge- engineering wins again. Right. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that always felt a little bit weird that he got this kind of redemption arc by getting violent justice on everybody. Um, and so, and I think I've, I've heard some interviews with Gilligan and Peter Gould talking about how they kind of felt like they didn't have, um, they kind of succumbed to that, to that anti-hero arc that a lot of prestige dramas mm. did in that time. And that especially came out in the treatment of women in the show, right? Where the women are kind of helpless and vulnerable and not very deep. And, you know, a lot of the fans hated the, the women characters in Breaking Bad. And they got a lot of like, you know, like threats from people online because of stuff. Like um, what's uh, Skylar White, right? Got a lot of that shit. Um, mm. And so that... Wait, the actual actor did? Yeah, I think she, she got like a lot of shit online um, oh, wow. for stuff at the time. I don't remember the details, but I remember her talking about how she was upset about it. Wow. And so, okay. yeah, that, that was all just kind of a toxicity that comes from this love for the sociopath character, right? Even though he's obviously the villain of the story. Um, and that's another one of those things where it's like, if, you're, if your whole audience doesn't get that you're making this character the villain, then maybe you've done something wrong, <laughs> right? Like you're supposed to turn on Walt when he lets Kristen Ritter die, Right from choking on her own vomit um, in Jesse's bed. Like that's when you're supposed to turn on him. And a lot of people didn't, right? And so maybe that's their fault. Like they should be, they're the problem and not realizing that he's become the villain at that point. (laughs) But also like they make him very cool and they make him sort of the the protagonist of the show still in a lot of ways. And they give him the redemption arc. So it's hard to say like, is he really the villain at this point? Um, Hmm. Okay, all that said, What's so different about Better Call Saul is a lot of the the narrative points in the series are similar, right? You have this character who has this inner kind of moral 
vicious nature that keeps coming out. He, he keeps falling back into Slip and Jimmy no matter what happens, just like Walt has this kind of megalomaniacal, um, vicious uh, heart that keeps coming out. And you see it's going to kind of end in this kind of tragic way, you think, just like uh, Breaking Bad did. So a lot of you know, similar analogous um, sort of narrative trajectory happening here with Better Call Saul. But instead, it doesn't end that way. It doesn't have big action sequences. It doesn't have violent justice and getting revenge on everybody, right? It has instead like moral transformation at its heart. Actual well, and, and that's re- so, so brilliant because what is the law about, right? And he's a lawyer. And I thought mm-hmm. this as it was happening, that final courtroom scene, I'm like, of course, the the final battle, the the showdown, the guns ablazing, I'm taking everybody out or I'm taking myself out. It's not going to be done with guns. He's not, he doesn't hold a gun, you know, it's going to be with the tongue Yeah, because words. that's, that's what his weapon always was. And it's going to happen in a courtroom and it's going to be within the the context and the framework of the justice system, which I think this series also has a lot to say about the law and about the justice system, and it has to take place in that context. And so I think that's, at least from a kind of like structural perspective, that was like a beautiful piece of storycraft. It had to be done that way. Yeah, exactly. No one thinks that the justice system actually accomplishes justice for the most part, right? (laughs) Right. But for this moment, it's going to. Right. In this yes. moment, it's going to happen. And it um, does deal in morality, right? Like as mm-hmm. much as people want to say like you can't legislate morality as an argument, I think that that's kind of a misnomer. Like it, it, it essentially is dealing with morality in a lot of ways. Yeah. The legal system is built around truth and justice, right? It doesn't deal with yeah. all the moral realms. Not everything moral is also a legal um, – like a legal subject, right? But – legal subjects do touch on moral concerns and deal largely with moral concerns. Um, Yeah. So I think it's appropriate that that's where it had to happen. That setting had to be the setting where it happened. Right. In in public, right. It's a public, it's a public Mm. admittance of the truth, which is what's important. It's not just like going to a TV show or write a book or whatever. Right. It needs to be said in public. Not everyone's listening necessarily. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, like a punishment, like an old school, like in the Foucauldian sense, you know, like that there's like you're in the, the public square and everybody can see this and maybe there will be like an expunging of like social of social guilt through this activity. Yeah, exactly. And that obviously can come in very many toxic forms and mostly it happens in toxic forms as Foucault talks about in Discipline and Punish, right? But clearly at that moment for Jimmy, it's purely an act of, it's a volitional act, right? It's entirely his own act, right? No one's forcing him to do it. And it's a form of self-realization. Like he only ever becomes himself, Mm. himself in that moment, right? It's not at all a kind of false consciousness or, or whatever. He doesn't even have a self before that moment. As Walt so neatly points out, you've always been a liar, a con man. You don't even know who you are. You, I mean, the moment where he tells Mike, I just want money from Berkshire Hathaway, is like, well, this is an empty vessel. <laughs> this is not like a, a fully-fledged human being. He's never really been a fully-fledged human being until the moment where he finally can tell the truth. I, I'm, tell me if you think I'm way off here. There's kind of like a Crito moment here 
you know, like in the, the Socratic, there's like, uh, uh, he can continue to get away with breaking the rules, but if he does that, then he's going to forever be sort of marred, if you will, by his immorality. And so there's a sense in which it's like a Socratic turn. It's like, because I'm trying to think, like, is it a Christ figure? It's not a Christ figure. You know, I mean, maybe you could say in a very loose sense, loose sense, maybe it's more like a Socratic turn here. And the, the, the use of the tongue is also, I mean, obviously, Jesus uses the tongue as well, right? But there's there's something about, like, the dialectic, maybe, in, in the Socratic sense, not in the Hegelian sense, that I'm thinking maybe takes place here as well. What, what do you think? Yeah, that's really good. I mean, just for listeners out there, the the Crito is the dialogue of Plato's where um, Socrates is in jail before the apology happens, before he's killed by the Athenian state. And um, some of his students uh, come to the jail with enough money to pay off his bail, basically, and get him out of jail. And he says, no, I won't do it. I'm going to stay. I want to have my day in court because it's important for the public to know what I have to say. It's important for me to make my case. Mm not just instrumentally important, but like in a sense, I kind of owe the state this. And by the state, he means like the public, right? It's not just, I want to have my day in court um, because I want to like show my authentic self or prove that I'm innocent or whatever. That's part of it. But the bigger part of it, the philosophical argument that he makes is that it's a sort of obligation to the society um, that I make this case. I've brought up on charges and I need to um, sort of show that I'm innocent for the sake of the well-being of the society. And that's like, you read that and it's kind of like, what? <laughs> what are you yeah. talking about? That's like insanity. Uh, but that is kind of what's happening here, right? In a certain sense, um, formally speaking. He, he, Jimmy's kind of, he needs to make this case about the truth to this, the public, right? It needs to be public record. It needs to be out there. Um, not just because it's good for him. It's obviously not good for him. Not just because it could get Kim back. I'm sure he's thinking in the moment, like she's gone anyway, right? Mm. Um, mm. But just because the truth is important, right? And I've never, the fact that I've never been able to reconcile that fact is what's ruined my life at mm. every moment, right? And so I'm going to change that now. Yeah, I never thought about it being a kind of like Socratic principle, but that is really what's going on there. I think. Yeah, that's really good. I just got a little chill and a little, little, little tiny, little tiny teary, just a little tiny bit teary eyed. Um, thinking about that. Yeah, it, it's yeah. kind of like on the verge of being dangerously over romanticized, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But that, but that's okay. It's so, it so well exemplifies that principle in a way that just doesn't happen in narrative storytelling contemporary like everyone's yeah. irony pilled right everyone's got to be irony pilled and even if you're not irony pilled you have to like like you have to show your hand or like you know give the nod to the irony pill you can't be just fully em embracing like the romantic in that way right yeah but yeah or if you do yeah or if you do it's so like over the top that it leans into like the i'm doing this to clear her name because i love her kim take me back or something you know or or there's the scene when she comes afterwards and she's like i will always love you and he's like me too you know it's like like they would have to fucking play up the sort of of sentimentality there mm -hmm. whereas 
I, I, I've this mentioned, is not I sentimental. Last, yeah. Yeah. And, and I've just, I'm so, I almost made this my shitty minute. Like I'm just craving mature adult grown up content. And there's just not much out there, dude. Like, like there is, but in the sea of what's presented and what's offered, you got to sift through a lot of other stuff. And I am just craving like a like like we live in a society that it's got like it's got like fucking Peter Pan syndrome, you know? Especially <laughs> where I come from in Orange County, and I would say even where I'm living now in Sydney, there's this desire there's this desire and especially if you add the fact that I'm, you know, I've still got one foot in the entertainment industry. Like everyone needs to be young and all the pop songs that we listen to are extremely juvenile and all the pop stars are all young and the content and the stories are young and there's just something about this this like immaturity in like there's like this infantilization of thought and of emotions and of 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 drama as well Right, like it's always got to be the overblown drama, like like the high school drama, in our storytelling, and and I feel like part of that I think is is we I think that there's a really deep conversation we can have about like the importance of this in relation to capitalism and and, and consumer culture and like the manufacture of desire, but I think there's also a sense in which it's like we don't we don't really have a society that does a really good job of, of taking us through the aging process. And mm. and this will touch on kind of like the capitalist mode of production and mode of consumption. But like the elderly are useless under under a system that desires a certain type of speed and intensity of output, right? So I remember mm. the first time I really ever thought about like the kind of inherent ageism of capitalism was actually an essay that I read by Stanley Hauerwas a long time ago. And... Um, this would have been in like 2009, 2010 that I read this. And um, it was in a collection of essays. I can't remember what it's called right now. Maybe something to do with hope. Um, but um, it was the first time that I really started to kind of like attune myself to it. And, and I can't remember the full argument, obviously, because it was like, you know, 13 years ago that I read this. But it was something along the lines of like, um, like we, we treat our elderly today as either like we discard them and we stick them in like nursery nurseries or like like old, old folks homes. Um, or they're like burdens on society or um, we treat them like, oh, aren't they cute? And we kind of like are patronizing towards them. Like, oh, look at that cute old person. Like rather than in, in previous cultural settings, the elderly were the ones who had the wisdom that were integral mm. to the training and development of the next generations, that were passing on the stories, that were passing on experience, that were passing on the things that they had encountered and lived through, that they can share that is valuable as such, right? And in a society that is constantly about the new, the novel, the turnover, there's a sense in which we totally devalue that to a great extent. And and I think that this affects like our mindset, the way that we think, and 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 I think that that it, it kind of like entraps us in perpetually seeking youthfulness, and um, and I think that it is like slipped over into how it is that we tell story and how we create content, and and just look at like the most downloaded app in the entire world is something that is like dominated and populated by Zoomers, and then even when you're a millennial, an older millennial, or a Gen Xer, or even if you're a boomer. 
you go on and you use TikTok, but you're using it within the kind of like formal framework. Think McLuhan here. The medium is the message. You're using something that is created for and by, in a large extent, by very young people. And it's not that young people shouldn't have a democratic voice. Of course, of course. It's amazing. But there has to be something that like helps us to grow and that takes us through these stages of emotional and intellectual maturity. And as I'm kind of growing, you know, heading towards 40, I'm like looking and I'm like, like what what is the content for a dude in his later 30s, right? Like what what is the content that I can gravitate to to help me in my transition to the next stage, right? In in my my desire to develop and to grow and to not be so consumed and immersed with the 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 forms of human experience that that I that I you know that I was immersed in when I was younger, right? And just finding those resources. I don't think we have a society that really equips us to find those resources very well. And I don't think it's just at this stage of life either. I think it's also like we don't, we're not really good at helping children become adolescents and adolescents becoming young yeah. adults and young adults. We we're not very good at any of the stages of development. But, but yeah, I, I just – the thing that's so amazing about something like Better Call Saul – and even about, I was telling Troy off air, I saw an amazing play last night. If you're in Sydney and you can, I know tickets are selling really fast and they might be quite steep, but if you're under 30, I know they, they do discounted tickets as well. Go see Sydney Theatre Company's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. Um, but um, And maybe it'll tour if you're in Melbourne, um, for example. It might go to Melbourne. I know their last production did as well. But um, anyway... There's just something about that type of content that is emotionally, intellectually, affectively mature, conceptually mature. And, and there's something so amazing about that because I just feel like there's not a ton of it. Yeah, dude, this, this is so good. What you're talking about is wisdom. Like that's what's missing, right? And that's why um, that's the place that the elderly person, the role they used to play in development is overseeing the development of young people into an adults and of you know, children into young people um, by providing wisdom. And we, don't, we completely lack that in culture now. And that's represented in the media content because, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, we had like the irony pill Gen Xers, right? And that <laughs> right. was obviously very easily sort of um, easy form of rapprochement with capitalism there because um, the irony pill doesn't care about anything, right? Uh, and so the response to that is like the new sincerity, right? Which was good because irony sort of is the death of, of care and concern for things. And so you need to revitalize that inherent sense of care and concern that people have. And that's wonderful, except for the fact that, you know, and this is kind of my, my diatribe against authenticity as being the foundational virtue, is mm. that your sincere, authentic, emotional self might be immature, <laughs> right? Mm. Might be unwise. Mm. And that's going to get you into a destructive outcome if you don't have uh, things to rely on that are more mature than you and that are wiser than you to help you develop towards becoming a wise and mature and um, independent individual. And so much of our content now is purely sentimental in the way we're just saying that Better Call Saul isn't, right? Like I just finished watching The Boys on Amazon and it's, it's great. I love it. It's super funny. It's very creative. It's very cynical about politics in a way that I find kind of refreshing um, and about like the kind of, you know, 
comic book Marvel way of looking at things. It's like sort of cynically mm-hmm. parody of that stuff. And it's great. But ultimately, that cynicism is met only with like sincerity. Well, our, our good guy characters just care about each other. And that's what mm-hmm. makes them the good guys. And it's like, that's great. I mean, that's true, right? But it's limited. Because there's no sense of, of the ends that matter, right? It's just about being like your authentic self. And the world as it is is bad because it makes you inauthentic, right? It makes you be fake mm. or something. And it's like, yeah, that's all true. Um, but it's limited because we need this sense of, of like, what is wise? What are, what are the ends that actually do matter, right? Does being our authentic self really matter? How would you even know what your authentic self really is? right? Let alone, is that authentic self even like worth being? And if you Uh, prioritize the authentic self, you're still operating within an atomistic social setting. Absolutely, right? Uh, And that even assumes that your authentic self is not co-constituted by the people, which of course it is, right? In a social setting. Um, Which like the new sincerity kind of stuff does mention that, right? Like the, the authentic self is part of like caring for other people and them caring for you. It's like, that's all part of it, right? Um, But it never really gets at whether or not um, like those ends themselves that you're undertaking that you care about matter. Mm. And what's so great about Better Call Saul is Jimmy kind of realizes he's never been authentic. But the solution to that is not to just embrace his inner authentic self. He doesn't have one. Mm. He's never had one. He's always mm. been a con man to his deepest core, right? He's always been that way. Mm, there is yeah. no original Jimmy to get to. It's always slipping Jimmy all the way down, <laughs> right? And so he has a moment of like subjective destitution there, right? Where he has to sort of wipe away that whole um, non-self that he's that he's had this entire life. And what are you going to do? Well, you're going to tell the truth, right? And that's going to be the beginning of becoming a real self. So he bases his action on principle. It's based on principle, even though it's kind of a, a kind of ridiculous, impractical principle. Tell the truth and get yourself in jail for like 60 years or whatever instead of six. Um, and the point of that's not like that the punishment itself is good or whatever. The point is just, no, like I'm, a- I'm acting on principle, which is that truth matters. And I learned that from Kim. The only way I could learn it, it wasn't in me already because there was no me <laughs> to get that from. I got it from, from Kim who's the only person I've ever known who actually, um, seemed to get it right. Seemed to understood, w- understand what matters. Um, mm. and I can tell that because she also did a very impractical thing. And that it only makes sense if it really mattered. And I trust her that it matters. And so, yeah, that's the reason that's mature emotional content is because it's not just about like expressing sincere emotions or whatever. Although those, you know, it's certainly part of it, right? His love for Kim is a sincere emotion, right? But his love for Kim isn't the thing that matters in the end. Like it's a nice thing that they still get to be together in a certain sense, right? And that their love kind of can come back into the story. But the point is that he acted on principle and he's finally able to like be a real person. Um, for the first time, that's what's satisfying. That's why he takes the the you know the tug of the cigarette so in such a satisfying way. Not just because mm-hmm. he gets Kim back or that his love is reciprocated or whatever. Although that's, those are all great things, it's because he's actually been able to act as a, like a real human being on a principle that he finds independently meaningful and that he thinks matters for the first time in his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this makes me think that there's something maybe missing in a society that has lost sight of the value of principles as being i hate to not maybe not foundational but as beacons 
or um, as guideposts, you know, um, and and when that's gone, when you when you do have any sort of doubt, it, it, it's sort of like the postmodern incredulity towards any sort of of meta narrative, right? When you have completely like lost your mooring, so to speak, it's very difficult to have integrity outside of just that individualistic authenticity. And not that that is bad in itself, like you said, but it's really easy for it to be co-opted by an exploitative economic system, a consumerist system. Mm -hmm. And I would say maybe... It just so turns out that your sincerest emotions are that you got to buy all this shit. (laughs) Yeah, I remember having a conversation with an ex one time and she was asking me, she was like, you know, like, like, what's your favorite, like, what's your perfect date? You know, she she was very very like adamant that I that I like know like that I that I described to her like my favorite thing to do, and I was kind of like, well, listen, I like like you know the things that I love, right? I love theater. I love a great conversation with friends. I like to have a good beer. You know, I like to to visit new places. But I was like, honestly, fucking anything, anything that fits within that vibe. Like it doesn't have to be. I need to see. A dramatic theater production like one of the most amazing times i've ever had at a live performance was this i was with michael burns uh if you know michael burns out there from wisecrack and he used to do this week in hip-hop on our podcast i was with michael burns in la at what was um io it was improv olympics which is no longer there rest in peace io but we were at improv olympics and we were just watching like their like standard like wednesday night it was one of the, the times i was visiting la and they were just doing like improv but they had this singer songwriter named julia noons or Nunez, um, I don't know, um, uh, but it's N-U-N-E-S, um, and uh, she would like sing a song from her catalog, and then the improv troupe would do some sort of like long-form improvisational scene based on what her song was, <laughs> and That's cool. it was one of the most amazing live experiences I've ever had in my life, because some of it was very like deep and rich and serious. Um, you know, she's a queer artist, so she was talking about some of her struggles, like, with sexual identity, and then some of it was just about, like, life living in L.A., and then some of it was just, like, love songs or breakup songs, and so they did all these scenes over the course of maybe two hours, and I was, like, laughing and crying and cheering and hooping and hollering. Like, it was amazing. I could never have predicted that, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But I was just open to the experience. So for me... I don't like identify with the things that a consumerist society can offer me to then say that is me. And I think so many people today, we think like you have to know who you are, but knowing who you are in your authentic self is always under the under the context of us understanding in relation to the things that we can do or get or achieve or consume under a capitalist society. And so knowing who you are is I like this sports team, which it's great to like a fucking sports team, but I like a sports team. I like to go to this restaurant. I eat this kind of food. Um, I go for these walks. I work out at this gym. I take these supplements. All of that is consumer-based in a society that is a consumerist society. And so it's very difficult to actually reach an authenticity that is not consumer-driven or determined. And so I always just found it very difficult to be pinned down. And and from a lot of people's perspectives, 
that just means that, oh, well, you just don't have a sense of self. And I actually think it's the opposite. I actually think that you have a, a, a real poor sense of self if the only way that you know what you are is by saying, I like to consume these things, whether it's events or actual physical products themselves. And, and it's very difficult to not see yourself in that sense. But I think that if your sense of like individual authenticity or like self-awareness is, is rooted in that consumerist mentality, then your authenticity is sort of, maybe it is actually inauthentic. And I think actually in like the true Sartrean sense where authenticity is a very important thing for someone like Sartre, you know, following like the Heideggerian existential promptings, right? For Sartre, that would still be, quote, serialized. You would still be dictated by these external compulsions that are determining, you know, your relationships under a consumerist society, which is why like someone like Sartre and even someone like Heidegger, but for Sartre and, and and then especially for like you know the the phenomenological and existential tradition, there's a break. There has to be some sort of break with those those uh, habitual lived attitudes. Is maybe like what like Husserl would call it, like the lived attitude, right? The kind of like the everydayness that you just kind of are caught up in. Like those things, even if you even if you try to affirm them and commit to them, there's still a sense that it's actually not authentic and maybe a deeper sense. So. In order to get to that, that kind of like outside of that like serial reproduction of kind of like the same kind of um, superficial sense of self, there has to be like a break and then a sort of a, a full retransformation of the things that you then build and connect to. And it has to be outside of, of that consumerist mentality or outside of that consumptive mentality or acquisitive mentality. Yeah, this reminds me of our discussion um, a couple months ago on Amya Srinivasan's paper on does anyone have the right to sex? Mm. To talk about how like we see it as sacrosanct that people's desires shouldn't be judged. And there's something good about that. Like we shouldn't um, sort of like moralize in a way where we where we have this like authoritative vision of morality that says like, you know, if you have gay desires, you're bad or something like that, right? Uh, mm. Or if you have, you know, king shaming is bad, stuff like that. And that's all, you know, true. At the same time, um, you can also use that to say like the fact that certain people are, um, are undesired, um, in like the sexual arena is just, you know, an unfortunate result of the marketplace of desire that exists out there. What are you going to mm. do about it? Right. When like, we actually have the ability to question our desires and to have second order desires, desires are better desires. And we know that those desires are shaped by. Um, social conditions, social and political conditions, and we can change those conditions. So we, in some sense, have to think a little bit about how we form those social and political institutions and practices in such a way that they help align our second order desires better with our first order desires, right? And that's a really fraught enterprise to do, but we yeah. can't not do it. To not do it right. is just to give in to the, the current system's way of shaping our desires, and that's pretty clearly not great in a lot of ways. Mm. Um so we have to be able to um, to engage in this really fraught, admittedly really fraught enterprise of questioning and critiquing the self. Mm. Yeah. Oh shit! I feel like we could go on uh, talking about this forever, but let's um let's put a button on it. Final thoughts on let's just whip it back to Better Call Saul here for a second. Final <laughs> thoughts on Better Call Saul and how this relates to things that we were talking about here about like principles and and and. The, the importance of, of not just, I don't know, valorizing, you know, like maybe you were talking about with like the boys. I haven't seen the boys, but um, 
not just simply valorizing a sort of like atomistic individualist conception or or, or however else you want to wrap up you know better call Saul um, what do, what do you think yeah I guess I think you're right about the the principles thing I guess you know when people hear that sometimes they hear the word principle and they think like oh this is like a fetishization of um, of like moral principles the ideal in a way or that's something. yeah like the de- like the deontologist or whatever right and that's not yeah. at all I think what um, we're talking about it's more like like principles exist because they they direct us towards what matters that's the point of principles right is to keep in mind to keep salient in your reasoning what ultimately matters and that's the thing that grounds the whole process principles don't ground it what matters does and that's what's mature like emotionally intellectually mature about better call Saul is that it's keeping things like truth and justice and and love and care um as the ultimate things that matter right and that's what guides um the the redemptive action that jimmy takes ultimately and then it's extremely impractical maybe just a, so, maybe so impractical as to make the point that practicality isn't what matters here right mm. um which i think is better the way to see it than like oh yeah punishment for its own sake is the point mm. yeah that's great and just on top of that it, it it's just a great fucking show in terms of i mean i i would say that Part of the reason why it's such a great show is that those big ideas are seamlessly woven through characters that are just also immensely human, and um, like that's what makes yeah. a story brilliant. That's what makes a story successful. When you're sitting there and you're watching it and you're like, oh, it felt a little cheesy, we might not always be able to articulate why, but I would argue that it's because these richer themes, they're either underwritten or they're absent, Right? And while you may get caught up in the emotion or we may get caught up in, in the levels of affect that make us feel, the if there isn't much there there behind that, then I think that ultimately the, the stories, the stuff, that the, the content that we consume is ultimately going to leave us a little bit empty. And like me, like I feel like after watching Better Call Saul, I, I feel like I ate a meal, like a full fuck. Like I'm okay right now. Like I don't need to rush out. Like it's always like what's the next thing we're going to watch? And I'm kind of like I just watched Better Call Saul. I watched Park Chan-wook's new film, Decision to Leave. And then I just watched some of the best theater I've, I've <laughs> ever seen in my life. That's like prestige TV, prestige cinema, and prestige theater. I'm full. I'm I'm. Like, if you were like Austin, uh, you cannot consume TV or film or theater for, you know, a week. I'd be like, that's okay. Maybe not a month. <laughs> yeah, you just had a, a $300 filet mignon, right? You yeah. Take a break for a minute. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm I'm okay right now, you know? Like, um, like, in terms of, like, my need to consume. And it's weird, bro. I've actually noticed this, like, like yesterday I was uh, – I, I took the train into work and so I've got like a 12-minute walk from the train station to my office and and um, like normally I'll listen to like content, stuff, you know, podcasts or like a YouTube video essay or, or something. And I literally – I started a few things and I just – I stopped them all because they all just felt empty. And, and I think it's just because I feel so full like – conceptually and with story right now that I'm like I don't need to listen to the new video essay on enter 
you know, whatever the fucking IP is that someone's talking about now. Or I don't need to listen to a... Like I, I, like I didn't even want to listen to like philosophy or anything like that. And so I was actually just like I took my, my earbuds out and I just walked and I wasn't listening to anything. And it was fantastic. <laughs> and I felt like fucking great. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm good. Um, and then later I listened to some bullshit sports ch- chat stuff just so I could catch up on, on what's going on with the gossip. But like I, I, I kind of was like I'm okay. Like I'm not, I'm not craving something right now. So there's also something really valuable about that that – I don't know. Maybe, maybe it helps us slow down in our need for like the the consumptive turnover as well when we when we really engage that that rich content. Yeah, Better Call Saul is not built in such a way as to be binged, which is thankful, right? You you don't feel like you have to um, watch a whole bunch of it at once. You can take it in bite sized pieces and digest it yeah. over time. Like we didn't even talk about, um, and not we can kind of end it here because we we're going a little bit long. The, the last scenes for both Gus and Mike were similarly uh, more tragic than Jimmy's, but this kind of level of, of maturity, right? Where like the scene where Gus um, is about to have a, a fling with the bartender at this bar that he's clearly into mm. and then realizes he can't. He just, his life means he can't do that. And then Mike has the, um, the confrontation mm. with Nacho's dad where Nacho's dad just tells him, you think that you're somehow better than the mm. gangsters and the mobsters, but you're not. You're the same. And so they both have this similar like self-realization and tragic in the form of Mike and and Gus, right? Um, not so with Jimmy, thankfully. Um, but yeah, that that because it leaves you with this, it's not a big action set piece. It's mm. not a bunch of people getting shot and killed, right? It's a kind of self-realization that makes you reflective. And when you're reflective after viewing um a piece of media that doesn't make you want to like just consume more it's not binging right where you just want to get more carbs or whatever uh more sugar whatever it is you've like you feel satisfied and full because you're have to engage in a period of Mm. reflection and that's how it should be yeah that's really beautiful yeah we we, those those scenes the again it's the tongue that is the deepest cut not not the physical violence right like it's Mm -hmm. It's the engagement with a human at the level of ideas and concepts and words and meanings, human meanings, that causes the deeper, that causes the deeper hurt or reflection or that stokes the deeper thought. Um, yeah, and crucially, not just like a barb, right? It's like self-realization. Yeah. All three characters, Mike, Gus, and Jimmy, engage in a form of self-realization yeah not just the zing it's good in the case of yeah i'm tired of the zing i'm tired of the ooh, that got you oh oh and i'm just like but but who gives a fuck they said a they said a clever quip but it doesn't do anything right like i'm so bored of like oh they destroyed him oh the barb no like okay cool bro i hope you feel self-satisfied nothing has happened you haven't affected anything. Yeah. Whereas when Walt says, you know, you've always been this way, it oh. does cut deep and it is a bar. Yeah. It's a zinger. But then it also sets the cascading momentum for Jimmy to engage in this moment of self-realization, right? So yeah. it's a zinger it, and there's lots of zingers in Better Call Saul and yet it plays <laughs> an important part in the narrative arc. But it isn't, it isn't packaged like a zinger. It isn't like they're in a fight and he's like, well, you've always been this way. And then it's like silence mm-hmm. and he's like... You're right, I have. It's more like he tells him this story and he's like, just matter-of-factly in Walt's grumpy way, 
oh, you've always been this way. And then it just kind of continues. But that's the thing that's like, that's going to stick with him. It's like, oh, so essentially you are a bad person, right? It's kind of like, oh, fuck. Like, that's different than just being like, oh, yeah, well, you're a da-da-da-da, you know? It, it, it's, a, it, it's a different tone. It's, it's presented in a different affect, and affect matters. Again, I don't know if this is a medium is the message thing, but there's a sense in which the way it's delivered, the source from whom it's delivered, the context in which it's delivered, the words that are mm-hmm. used, the the emotion by which it's delivered, those things all matter. And that's why it wasn't just a zinger. It was something much more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, great fucking show. Any show that can create this kind of conversation too just makes me so excited. It makes me want to like just be involved with good content and be around it and soak it in, you know? Yeah, like you can make stuff that that matters. I cannot wait for the new Cormac McCarthy book. <laughs> the new Cormac McCarthy book is coming. He's been working on it for like 15 years. I think I heard about something about that like six months ago. Is something recent, more recent come out about it? It's coming out like next month or maybe it's out now, but I think it's coming okay. out like, yeah, it's called The Passenger. Oh, I didn't know you were a Cormac McCarthy fan. <sighs> oh, yeah, dude. Yep, yep, yep. I'm a fan. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> I haven't read everything, but um, I've read The Road, Child of God, and Blood Meridian. Yeah, I've only read Blood Meridian. Yeah, and that move, that book is insane. And then, of course, you know, I've seen that, it's No Country for Old Men. <laughs> um, so Yeah. Yeah. I actually saw the film Child of God, too, because uh, the lead actor in that is somebody that I was acquainted with for a while, Scott Hayes. Um, brilliant actor. But the movie... It, it, it's good, but like fucking, I don't know if you've read the book, but Child of God is dark. <laughs> fucking yeah, dark. It's, it's Cormac McCarthy. I expect it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but sorry, I got excited because we were just talking about good filet mignon style uh, content to consume. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and wrap that up and we'll head on to our final segment of the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in an otherwise potentially meaningless universe. So, Troy, what has got you smiling right now? So it's appropriate that we're talking this entire episode about uh, intellectually mature media. um, Because I'm going to continue that by talking about the show that I just watched called The Bear, which was on FX and Hulu. Are you familiar with that? I've heard about it. No, I just I heard about it and I saw a photo of some dude in the kitchen that everyone was thirsting over. And, that's all <laughs> and he's the dude with the tattoo. He's got like the longer hair and the tattoos. Yeah, you, you saw like the, the dirt the dirt bag guy is coming back as a sex symbol. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, everyone was in love with the dirt bag guy. Yeah, and, and so many people on Twitter, they were like, oh, this is what every boyfriend that I like. Oh, what was it? It was like, like the guys that I shouldn't date, but that I continually <laughs> date sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll make it quick. Uh, this show is incredible. It's it's the best thing I think. Wow. Um, along with Better Call Saul, the, it's the best new thing I think I've seen in the last um, year, maybe more. Um, it's about a guy played by Jeremy Allen White, who people may know from Shameless, um, who is a he works at the uh, like a high scale, upscale New York restaurant scene. He's a really famous um, cook. His brother is back in their hometown of Chicago, and he like owns like a beef like a beef sandwich place um, that churns out lots of food. Okay. And it's really popular, but it's you know more low scale. And uh, yeah. the brother commits suicide and leaves the beef restaurant to his 
um, to his brother, who's this really um, kind of important and famous cook. So to honor his brother, he goes back to the beef restaurant in Chicago and decides he's going to run it and like make it legit. Um, like make it real, like a good restaurant and not just like a churning out beef and chaotic and all this stuff. And all the while dealing with <laughs> right. all the while dealing with the loss of his brother and the reconciliation with his family and his own issues and stuff like that. And it's it's a beautiful show. It's inventive. It's there's one episode that's like 27 minutes. And it's all one shot, all in the kitchen, and it shows a lot of the chaos that happens in the kitchen, a commercial kitchen. Um, mm. And so that that was all wonderful. And there's there's something really in the same thing we're talking about 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 emotionally intellectually mature media. It it's not really it's kind of genreless in a way. It's drama. It's comedy. It's all over the place. A lot of the the moves are are strange. Like the the characters don't fit neat archetypes in a really important way that I really love. And at the same time, they're all wonderful characters. I think everybody's reaction to the show was every single one of the characters in the show I would die for because they're so well-rounded and interesting and quirky and unique and different and bad and good. And um, even like the the kind of character who's the the cousin who's like the worst guy is amazing and you love him even though he's the worst guy because <laughs> they have these really deep um complex hearts at the center of everything and it's not neat it's not tidy it doesn't have a a, a nice moral kind of lesson at the end necessarily it's open to interpretation i think in a way that even like a better call Saul being a little bit more linear isn't um but i think anybody who listens to this show is gonna love the bear so if you haven't watched it it's on hulu it's great. Most of the episodes are like thirty minutes, so um, I love the fact that it's it's pretty nice and ni- nice and like tightly packed, unlike a lot of the, the hour and ten minute yeah. shows recently that have no mm, mm. like I, apparently having an editor is like a bad thing. Uh, and you especially, <laughs> dude. I know that you'll love uh, this series. It's totally up your alley. Okay. Yeah, I keep hearing about it, and I just haven't. I don't know why I've even hesitated, but yeah, I, I haven't even. I just keep seeing it everywhere, so I'm like, okay, shit, shit. There was some some Twitter thread that went a little viral, and it was like, you know, what are the best TV shows of recent memory or something like that. It was all the usual sus. Oh, no, of like from, since 2010, I think it was. And um, The Bear was consistently mentioned. And I was kind of like, oh, is that just like, you know, prisoner of the moment kind of thing, or is it actually excellent? But I just keep seeing people talk about it, so yeah, it's on my radar. Yeah, it definitely is that excellent. Oh, wow, okay. Well, sick. Well, then fucking maybe we'll do another freaking media studies thing uh, <laughs> in the future here after I watch the bear. We can chat about that. <laughs> um, all right, sick. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, as always, you can reach us on Twitter if you have any thoughts or questions or anything like that. Owls underscore at underscore Dawn. Uh, you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. As Troy said, you can hit us up and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And I think that's pretty much it, brother, unless there's anything I'm forgetting to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das the Danya and the Rikonski. Yeah.